How many of you here are bakers? I see the hands quickly. You enjoy making tasty treats, cakes, pies, cookies. My wife, uh, in fact, is the best baker there out there, just so you know. She's good at making pies, and thanks to a holiday week, we enjoyed three pies this week, so it was a good week. Uh, in fact, she made uh, later this week, she made an incredible blueberry pie. Uh, my wife's crust is, is really, really good. She learned it from her mom, so one of the reasons why I married her. She knows that. And I was talking to her about her pie recipe last night, and, and she said in her recipe, it calls for, this blueberry pie, it calls for lemon juice. Have you ever had lemon juice? Anyone pour a big, refreshing glass of lemon juice and drink it? Anyone want to do that? No? Why? Because it's sour. It's tart, right? I mean, people that do that, we tend to look at them strangely. We don't, we don't necessarily do that. It has a, a bitter taste. But I, I, I further asked, you know, so why do you put lemon juice in a pie? I'm, I'm ignorant. I'm not a baker, so I don't understand this. And she said that, that lemon juice brings out the flavors of, of the fruit that's there, and it makes it enhanced, as she said. And without lemon juice, I said, I said, is it still a blueberry pie? And she said, most definitely, it just is not going to taste as good. It, it'll taste better with that bitter ingredient. It enhances the flavors, and because of that, we get to enjoy it. This morning, we're going to be in the book of Ruth. We're going to look at the life of Naomi. She feels that her life, after much tragedy, is just bitter. She has singled out the pain and has centered her existence solely on that. But as we will see, as we walk through the book of Ruth, this bitter thing in her life is only part of the grand scheme of what God is doing. God is a master baker. He knows how to use his ingredients. And just like in a blueberry pie, that bitter ingredient is necessary. This morning marks the first of a four-week journey through the book of Ruth. We're going to look at the book of Ruth the next four weeks. And I want you to understand it's a very old book. Uh, the events that we talk about this morning happened over 3,000 years ago. But don't let that scare you away because it's very relevant for our day today. The book of Ruth is a love story. Some of you are thrilled about that. It's a story of an interracial marriage. It's a story of the sovereignty of God. It's a story of a refugee leaving home and seeking peace and supply in another country. One commentator said, that this is the most beautifully short story ever written. It is a short book. Only 85 verses is the length of Ruth. It's a beautifully written book. The author in this 85 verses wastes no words. And so if you look at the breakdown of the book, the book has four acts. It's a story of, of Ruth, Naomi, and a man named Boaz. There are many supporting personalities that are throughout this story. The first act is chapter one. And it starts really in verses six through the end of the chapter. There's two scenes in this first chapter that we'll look at. Act two we'll cover next week, Lord willing, where we'll hear of, of Boaz for the first time. Act three is where the love story between Ruth and Boaz really takes off. And act four is the final chapter of the book where we see in full view the sovereignty of God in this situation. The book begins with the first five verses with a prologue, an introduction to the story, and it ends with a few verses of an epilogue, the, the conclusion which wraps up the story. 
There are many characters in the book of Ruth. You'll hear about Elimelech and Naomi and, and their sons who had wives, Orpah and Ruth. And there's Boaz. And we'll come and understand that there's an unnamed kinsman redeemer. We'll talk about him in a few weeks. And then we have God. He's always present. He's mentioned. And his activity in this story cannot be underestimated. He is in control of the life of Naomi and Ruth. He's not surprised by any of what happens in this story. In fact, he's the author of this story. So I wanna ask you to join with us the next four weeks as we walk through the story of God's redemption in their lives. You may think that this book, and you rightly so, come to it as a love story between Ruth and Boaz. And, and yes, it has large sections about that, but I hope you understand as I walk through it that I believe this is a story about Naomi. This is about her life and what God is going to do in her life. I hope I do well in bringing that out as we walk through this book. I wanna encourage you this next few weeks to read the book of Ruth. So we're, we're gonna walk through Ruth chapter one, but next week, spend every day reading Ruth two, every day. It's 23 verses, I believe, chapter two. It takes just a few minutes. But that will serve you well as you come back and we engage the text and look at what God has for us. So I wanna encourage you to do that. So if your Bible's open to Ruth chapter one, and we're gonna read the entire first chapter, Ruth chapter one. Starting in verse one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judea went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephorites from Bethlehem and Judea. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. And both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from this place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. 
May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, her returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we come again before you, thanking you for the opportunity that we have to come and to look at your word. We ask that you would give us understanding as we look, as we study, as we read your word. Maybe again, Come with our questions that we have for you, God, in the midst of suffering and see in the lives of Naomi and Ruth and Orpah how we should respond. Father, give us faith to trust you, especially in the midst of misery and emptiness that we may face in our life. Father, may we trust in you. May we see you and understand who you are. Give us understanding this morning. We ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. If you saw in your bulletin, I've entitled the message this morning, uh, Misery and Emptiness. And I want to spend the majority of my time this morning in three responses to the misery and emptiness in life. The three responses from Orpah and Naomi and, and Ruth. But before we get to the, the responses of these three women, I want to look at the prologue, the, the introduction to this book. How does this story begin? Well, it begun, begins as verse one, it says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And there was this man, Elimelech, and his wife, Naomi, and their two sons, and they decide to leave. The book of Ruth follows the book of Judges. So you should be able on the same page, most of your Bibles look over there, because the last verse of the book of Judges gives some insight in the day and time of which Ruth happens. Judges 21, verse 25 says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Ruth is set in a time before there was a king, and when the judges ruled in Israel, it was a very dark time for the country, and everyone did what they wanted to do, and sin was rampant because God's people had hardened their hearts towards God. And there was a famine, it says, the author says, in the land. And we learn from scripture that when there's a famine, it's God's judgment against his people. Ian Duguid, in his commentary of Ruth, lays out a pattern that we can read through the entire book of Judges. And this is what he writes. There is a repeated cycle, or perhaps more precisely, a downward spiral of events in the book of Judges. At the beginning of each cycle, God's people rebelled against him and sinned. Next, God acted in judgment against them. Then the people repented and cried out to the Lord. At least they did this the first few times they passed through the cycle. Later on in the book of Judges, though, the step of repentance is missing. Finally, at the end of each cycle, the Lord sent a deliverer to rescue his people, and they experience some measure of rest. This is the pattern of life right now. And in the midst of those difficult times, Elimelech, 
leaves his home, he leaves Bethlehem. Bethlehem is literally called the house of bread. There's a famine at the house of bread. And he takes his wife and his two sons and they move to Moab. It is not like we were to move from Puyallup to San Francisco. This is much more significant. God had delivered his people from Egypt and brought them to the land of Canaan as a special place for them to live. And God had called Elimelech and his family to live in Bethlehem. And he had no business to leave and go elsewhere, especially Moab. For Israelites, Moab was known for several things and not one of them were good. The Moabites had originated out of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter. The king of Moab, Balak, hired Balaam to curse Israel when they came out of Egypt. And their women, the Moabites, had been a stumbling block to Israel in the wilderness, seducing them to worship false gods. Moabites did not worship the God of Israel, but instead they worshiped and served the God Chemosh. So does this sound like a place where you want to take your family and raise them in a godly way? Not at all. All of this seems to be ironic for Elimelech to do because his name means my God is king. It seems as though that God is truly not his king, but comfort. Comfort is his king. Elimelech chose comfort over faith. He chose to move his wife and two sons to a place where God was not. He, like many in his day, chose to do what was right in his own eyes. So I think, and I ask the question for us, what, which road do we choose for our life? You know, you may leave this church at some point. We struggle with that, I think, in American Christianity, but God may call you to another job, another city, another church, another ministry. And as long as it's done in the, in the right godly way, we're gonna celebrate that. But wait, what factors weigh heavily in those decisions that you make in moving? It could be leaving this area altogether. It could just be leaving your house and moving to another one. Is the factors a, a supply, a comfort, security, or is it God's will for your life and for your family? You know, we rarely think seriously about the impact our choices will have on raising our family in this world. Do you choose a home, a neighborhood, a job primarily because of comfort and security and pay? Or do you choose it because you can see how God will use you in those situations for his honor and his glory? Or is it for us, do we make those decisions backwards? Meaning, God, I want this, I'm going to do this, so how can you use it? Are we like Elimelech, acting like we are sovereign out of our own lives, making choices that seem best in our own eyes without reference to God and without serious thought about the long-term implications for our family? It seems at first, the decision that Elimelech made to leave where there's no food to a place where there was plenty was a wise decision. He could supplies for his family, I'm sure he thought. But the unthinkable happens. Elimelech dies in verse three. And Naomi is left with her two sons and now a decision. Does she stay in Moab or does she repent and return home? It's no shock that she stays in Moab and there Naomi's sons, Malon and Kilion, take Moabite women for their wives. You know, the decision to continue in disobedience seems easier if you think you're already on that path. And, and what, what will it hurt? 
Now, as I look at this and I understand the charge that was given to Israelites, she should have left. She should have repented. She should have returned home. But usually the biggest obstacle in returning home is pride. We hate the idea of having to admit that the decisions that we've been making were wrong and then return home with our lives in ruins and admit that we're wrong. We don't like that. We run from it. And somehow it seems easier to continue in the emptiness and the pain than confess our disobedience and then pursue God. We're not even told if Naomi even considered going home after Elimelech's death. I'm sure she thought she was still safe. She, she thought, I, I still have two sons to take care of me and to supply for me, so I'm just gonna stay. But then the unthinkable happens again. Her two sons die, as we read in verse five. And in the space of just a few verses, Naomi's life came crashing down. I mean, can you picture Naomi now standing before three graves? And what lies in the ground before her now is the hope that she had for this life. You know, in this day, no family means no food. There was no government-sponsored welfare programs for Naomi. Naomi stands there, I'm sure, and you can see her sad and tortured face. I don't know if there's any more tears at this point. She's probably exhausted from weeping. We have a woman whose face is broken with tremendous loss of life, loss of dreams, loss of plans. Her husband and sons are gone. And in verse six, she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from, this, from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. With no other choice, it seems, Naomi finally decides to return to her own country. There's no more hope for her in Moab. God has returned food to Bethlehem. The house of bread seems to be fully stocked now. This transitions for us into the responses of misery and emptiness. How, how will Orpah and Naomi and Ruth respond to the tragedy that God has brought into their lives? Well, first, I want to see Orpah's response to misery and emptiness. You know, I looked and looked, but there is not anything written by, by, about Orpah in Scripture other than what you read here in Ruth 1. And what we know of her is that she is a Moabite woman and she marries one of Naomi's sons. She implies to go back with Naomi, but she decides not to. And looking at the decision that Oprah made, it seems sensible. She did initially want to go with Naomi back to her country, but in the end, she chooses not to go back based upon the evidence that she sees and based upon the common sense and what Naomi says. She may be reasoned that there wasn't much hope to continue on with Naomi. You know, Naomi brought up a number of good points for her. There was no husband to marry. There was, no, there was not much hope to go to a country that would really reject her and look down upon her because she was from Moab. So she decides to stay and be in the safety of her parents' home. You know, I find it ironic because she's using the same logic that Naomi and Elimelech use when they leave Bethlehem 10 years earlier. 
The fields of Moab seemed greener in the land than the land of Israel. I believe that she loved her mother-in-law, Naomi, but reason won out and she decided to stay in her own country. She decided to stay with her own gods. She decided to stay where it was safe. And she decided to look for fullness elsewhere. I mean, the world would look at it and say, who, who could blame her? It, it seems like a, a reasonable, sensible choice. But with this choice, Orpah walks off the pages of the Bible and we are never to hear from her again. She ultimately walks away from the God of the scriptures. Orpah chooses comfort. She did what the world would do. She chose not to be empty, but in her choice, she was led to a whole new type of barrenness that this world cannot fill. Orpah chooses what she knows. Orpah misses out on the one true thing, one true value in life. She missed out on having a relationship with the Lord, the one true God. She chose with her eyes. Again, I, I, she probably learned this from Naomi and Elimelech. Whether she found what she was looking for in Moab, it's, it's not the issue and we're not told, but she missed out on God. And the saddest part of Orpah's story is that she probably never even knew what she was missing. Second, you can see, and I want you to understand Naomi's response to misery and emptiness. I'm gonna skip Ruth for a moment and go to Naomi. She does the majority of the talking here in the first chapter, and she believe, I, I believe she suffered the most of any of the three. At the full realization now that she has no more hope in Moab, she finally decides to return to Israel. The daughters-in-law follow her like lost puppies looking for shelter, and Naomi probably only walked for a few minutes to realize then she's being followed by them, and she turns and speaks to them in verse eight. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. She came to the realization that there was no more hope for these two women to continue on with her any longer. And so she releases them. It's interesting that she says that they should return to their mother's, mother's house. We're used to seeing in, in scripture the designation that girls would be a part of their father's house until their marriage. So, so why does Naomi encourage them to return to their mother's house? Well, it's... I did some research to kind of understand this. And in the Old Testament, it's referenced to the marriage relationship. And the Song of Solomon refers to the bedroom of a person's mother where the husband and wife might find privacy. So by sending each of her daughters-in-law home to their mother's house, Naomi is essentially saying, I release you. I release you from this relationship. Go remarry. But when the women refuse and insist on in coming with her, Naomi begins her first lament of what life has dealt her. Verse 11, Naomi said, turn back my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back my daughters, go your way for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Naomi's response was to affirm the sovereignty of God, but not his goodness. And why it's true she gave a seemingly warm goodbye to them in verses eight and nine, it becomes more clear that it was just a, a, a polite response, a kind of 
goodbye and Godspeed. She, she, I'm sure, realizing that there's no way that she can support these two women. And so she feels the weight of them on her returning to her homeland. I'm also sure that she feels some sort of level of shame. If they were to return with her, they would be an, an albatross around her neck, as one author said. They would be the stigma of the sinful choice that she made. Naomi is bitter. She acknowledges this herself later in the chapter when she arrives in Bethlehem and she changes her name to Mara. Naomi means pleasant, but Mara means bitter. And she feels like she has to warn Orpah and Ruth because she's convinced that God is against her. And their lives just might become as bitter as hers. For Naomi, this bitterness is the only reality that she knows. And because it's only the only thing she's centered on, she has redefined who God is. For Naomi, her circumstances indicated that God is great, but God is not good. Her theology is way off. How do we know this? Because it says nowhere that God was angry at her or that God was out to get her. We can go to one side and begin to think that this is punishment for leaving Israel, but nowhere in the text does it say this. She has, as, as some of sometimes we have in suffering, redefined who God is based upon our happiness. We, we tend to do that. We judge God's love and faithfulness by how many of our desires have been met. Too often, it's not God's will that we're after, but our own will made possible by God. When our desires are not met, our words begin to showcase what we're really after. Didn't Naomi make God to be a servant of her agenda? Do we do the same? You know, God, I'll serve you if I have what I need. God, I'll serve you if I have health and wealth. God, I'll serve you when the time seems right. With Naomi, she's ruled by her circumstances instead of being ruled by the Lord of her circumstances. Her circumstances pointed to the fact that she no longer had what she wanted and needed. And so from her vantage point, God was against her. And when you lose what you hold most dear, you begin to exaggerate the hopelessness that you feel. And we become bitter in our life when we lose what we love and then we fail to see the rays of light peeking through the clouds. Naomi doesn't see any of that. All she sees is the loss. It was God who ended the famine in Bethlehem and gave food and gave the opportunity for Naomi to go home. It was God who would preserve a kinsman redeemer in the line of Elimelech. It was God who would work in the heart of Ruth, saving her and then bringing her along for this journey. It was God. But Naomi forgets her theology. And I said this last week, and I need to, it bears repeating. You will need your best theology when you suffer. You'll need it. 
So do we view the situations of life, the suffering, the pain, the turmoil as part of God's plan? This text, this book, challenges you to believe that God is active in your life, even in the midst of difficulties, even when it hurts. The the book as a whole teaches us about God's providence in our lives. He is not only in control, but he's up to something good. Namely, the accomplishment of his redemptive plan and the perfection of his people. And the, the challenge of walking by faith is to see the situations in our life as opportunities to glorify Jesus Christ. And too often, though, we think that the situations of our lives are about what we need. What is your view of God? What is your view of God when your desires and your needs haven't been met? Do you still consider him faithful and caring? Or is he against you because he's not met what you need? God does not enter in a relationship to just give us everything that our heart desires or needs. God enters a relationship to give us himself. We get God. And in him, we have security and we have peace and we have comfort and we have contentment and we have joy. And sometimes to get to that dependence that's needed in our relationship with God, he must strip away things that are holding us up things that we've brought into our life to brace us up. And God says, I'm going to take them out so that you depend upon me. He may use the consequences of our sin or even the consequences of somebody else's sin to get our attention. And this is hard for us as finite creatures to understand. But God doesn't require us that we understand. God says, trust me. God says, walk by faith. Because when we get to eternity, it will put everything, all the current circumstances in life, it'll put it in proper perspective. You know, Paul, in writing to the church of Corinth in the second book in 2 Corinthians in chapter four says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And before you, you, you know, Paul says these words, our suffering is light and momentary. And so before you go on the path and say, what does Paul know about suffering? Well, let me tell you, Paul knew suffering. And he calls our suffering in this world light and momentary. And he says it's preparing us for something. It's preparing us for the full weight of glory. If we in the future in heaven were to weigh the sufferings that we've experienced in this earth against the weight of glory that we will experience, we will see that it far outweighs. We may live in this world 70 years of pain and suffering, but when we see Jesus face to face, it'll be worth it all. Our suffering in this this world, on this planet, will barely fill a cup compared to the glory that we'll see in God the Father. I don't want us as believers, as part of this church family, to just endure suffering. I want us to embrace it. Now, hear me, I'm not saying go look after suffering, go search out for it. God's just gonna bring it. 
but I don't want us just to try to get through it. Folks, don't waste your suffering. God is doing something in this. He's brought this into our lives for our good and for his glory. Naomi misses this. So we've seen Orpah's response and Naomi's response last. I want you to see Ruth's response to misery and emptiness. You'll understand this as we go through the book of Ruth, but Ruth is seemingly not human. She's extraordinary. It's, it's, for me, it's phenomenal to read Ruth and to see her response. I just, it's hard to comprehend sometimes because I am human. Ruth is not normal. Something of legend here in, in biblical text. Look at verses 16 and following. Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die and there I'll be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. You know, I don't know if you've ever been to a wedding ceremony. Maybe it was part of yours, but these words, these verses are, are read frequently in wedding ceremonies, written out for husband and wives. And that's well and good. You know, a wedding is a good reminder to this, and I have no issues with that. In fact, it's, it's a good thing to have it. But, but folks, we need to again look at the context of the chapter so we fully understand it. What is the setting? Why is, what, what is happening here when Ruth responds? Well, we have Naomi. How would you put her disposition at this point? Is she a peach? She's bitter. She's angry. Probably depressed. Struggling. She does not want Orpah or Ruth. She doesn't want them. In fact, she seems to be fine for them to go back to their gods, as she says in verse 15. We don't have much of a loving response from Naomi. And so it seems as though when Ruth responds, it's a one-way commitment. If I sit down in premarital counseling with a couple and the husband relays this Ruth's response of all he's going to do, and the wife says, I don't really want to marry him. I'm going to have pause to that wedding. Let's talk about something. That's what we have here. Ruth is beyond my understanding of loyal to Naomi. She is strapping herself to a gloomy, angry, bitter woman. And Ruth's commitment to her destitute mother-in-law is simply astonishing. Ruth's choice to go with Naomi was not going to be an easy choice. She knew that she would not be welcome in Bethlehem. Conventional wisdom of her day would be shouting at her to go back to her people, to find a husband there. But Ruth was not conventional. And she would not allow Naomi to journey back on her own. The end of verse 14 says that she clung to her. This is the same Hebrew word that we have in Genesis 2.24, which describes the bond between a man and a wife in marriage. So for those you had in your wedding ceremony, good for you. You followed the right biblical pattern. She clung to her. She was not going to let go. And even after the attempt of Naomi to sway Ruth, she responds with a beautiful outpouring of her heart and devotion and commitment to Naomi. Each statement of Ruth to Naomi ratches up the commitment. It starts low. Where, where you go, I will go. 
she, she's going to follow Naomi wherever she goes, but not just that. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Where you live, I will live, she says. She will take care of her. She will support her. And then she says, your people shall be my people. This is so significant. Ruth is of a different race, a hated race. And the stigma that would rest on her and Naomi now as they arrived back in Bethlehem would be heavy. People will stare, people will judge. And Ruth is saying, I'm willing to go through this in commitment to you, Naomi. And then the most significant one, I believe, she says, your God will be my God. This is the most important statement in chapter one. This, I believe, is the motivation for all that she's doing. Ruth has changed. She has been converted from a Moabite follower of Chemosh to the God of Israel. She is new. Life is different for her now. And she's thinking, how could I ever stay here? I need to go with you. I worship God. Perhaps she learned about Jehovah years earlier from her husband. We're not told, but now she's saved. And then she ends that. She says, where you die, there I will be buried. She's even willing to be buried with Naomi in her land. I can't imagine what Ruth's parents are thinking at this point. They've probably cut her off. This is incredibly offensive and blasphemous to them that she would dare leave her country and then go there and then to live and to die and to be buried there. That was a huge no-no. That shows her commitment, not only to Naomi, but a commitment to her God. So you see the magnitude of what Ruth is promising to Naomi. She's willing to be this refugee to serve her mother-in-law. She's willing to be an outsider. It is incredibly hard to move from one country to another. I've been there. I mean, 2016 is a lot easier than it is now. It's difficult to feel like you're on the outside. Even when you learn languages, you don't get it. There's all, you're always on the outside. Humor happens, you're like, huh? I don't understand. She's on the outside. She's willing to be uncomfortable to serve her mother-in-law. And she's committing her life to Naomi. Body and soul, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, sickness and in health. Ruth is laying down her life for her mother-in-law. So how does Naomi respond to this? What is Naomi's response to, to the incredible commitment that Ruth has? Verse 18, and when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. She didn't get a card or a hug, or a thank you. There was no appreciation for what Ruth was doing. It was a silent agreement. Literally, the Hebrew says, when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. Hmm. Wow. And that ends the discussion. Ruth and Naomi would leave on a 30 to 40 mile journey to Bethlehem. Have you ever sat in a car with someone over awkward science? 
Can you imagine walking 30 to 40 miles with awkward silence? It was awkward. It was a fun trip, I'm sure. But Naomi's suffering. You can't discount also what Ruth is going through. She lost her husband. She lost her brother-in-law. She lost her father-in-law. She lost, she's losing her home. She's suffering too, but the responses are dramatically different. So verse 19, the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? Just to pause there, they don't even mention Ruth. They know she's there. They reference it multiple times. Them, they, they know there's two of them, but they're not gonna talk to Ruth. They ignore her. They only talk to Naomi. In verse 20, Naomi responds, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. They land back in the hometown with Naomi and again, Naomi responds now to the new audience that she's not doing well. There's a stark contrast between Naomi and Ruth. Ruth has a faith in God that sees beyond the current suffering that she's experiencing. Naomi only looks back at what was lost. Ruth shows freedom from the securities and the comforts of this world. Naomi shows bondage to the life that she thinks should be. Ruth has courage to go to an unknown and strange land, and Naomi has fear of what others may think. Naomi needs to see the gift of Ruth right before her eyes. She's a blessing. She thinks that she's come back to Bethlehem empty. Can you imagine what Ruth thinks when she's standing there and she says, I went away full and now I come back empty? Ruth's like, hi, I'm here. She forgets the woman right next to her. Naomi's bitterness has caused her to become blind. She cannot see what God is doing. This is a bitter providence. God has brought someone alongside her in which one is a foreigner, one that's unclean. This is the one that God will choose to insert into the bloodline of the Savior. God is a master baker. And he knows the bitter ingredient that's needed and necessary because God is planning the genealogy of the Messiah. He'll take, just turn over a couple pages to Ruth chapter four. The epilogue here in this book, verse 18. It says, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Solomon, Solomon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. 
What if Naomi could see what God is doing, that she would have a grandchild from Ruth, and the child would be the grandfather of David, the king of Israel, and David would be the ancestor of the king of the universe, Jesus Christ. What if she could see what God is doing? God doesn't show her that. He doesn't show us in the midst of suffering either. But he expects us to trust him. What are we to learn from this chapter, Ruth 1? Three things I want to bring out. The first thing we need to learn and recognize is that we're probably more like Elimelech and Naomi than we want to admit. Like Elimelech and Naomi, we often find that the grass is greener in other fields than the one that God has put us in. The temptation to leave the bread from heaven for the food of this world is strong, especially when there are times when the bread of heaven seems scarce, little. Often we lack trust in God's goodness for our lives. We might complain about the job that God has given us, complain about the spouse that God has brought to us, complain about the family that he has given us or the lack of the family that God has given us. And then we begin to fantasize about another field, a greener field. Maybe God is using this sermon, maybe God is using this text this morning to bring to your attention that you have left what God has provided. You have made an idol out of your desires. And God is calling you back into obedience of his word. And sometimes it's a slow, hard path. And God might need to strip away things from your life that you have depended on more than him. Folks, I want you to see this as God's grace in your life. It's his grace to draw you back to himself. And I would implore you to submit to him. Life is better when we obey God. Amen? I would encourage you to repent, return to him. The second thing I want you to notice, I think sometimes we are like Naomi and lack concern for the Moabites that are around us. What what do I mean by that? Well, in verse 15, in the midst of her suffering, she tells Naomi, or Naomi tells Ruth and Orpah to go back to their gods. She ignored who was right in front of her. You have Moabites around you, so to say. Those that need God. Do you see them around you? They're living right around you. They work around you. They pass you by on a regular basis. People that we see day after day, and we begin to assume that they're probably not interested in the gospel, so I'm not going to share it. Or, or I don't have time to do this. I'm afraid if we're truly honest with ourselves, we too often have little care or zeal for friends and neighbors, just like Naomi, who didn't have care for her daughters-in-law. You know, part of Naomi's problem is that she wasn't a very good member of her community, of her covenant. She had left when she shouldn't have. 
There was no distinctive holiness in her life. She was consciously living a life of disobedience to God. And so she wasn't eager to share about the hope of God. It's hard to point people to Jesus if we're unable to submit our lives to him ourselves. You know, but even in the midst of this, even in the midst of Naomi and her reaction to God and what she does, God still works. He works and he draws Ruth to come. He saves her. God's mission is to rescue sinners. And God will call all that would be saved into himself. But we have a privilege. We have a joy as believers to be a part of this mission. Do we see this? Do we recognize this? Third, I want you to see and understand the gospel. What you see in this chapter is God's pursuit of sinners. Ruth is simply a pointer to the gospel, a small symbol of God's grace that pointed Naomi to the great symbols of God's grace. And the gospel is the fundamental answer both to our lack of trust in God and our lack of concern for the unbelievers that are in our lives. God gives us the gospel, which is the answer for all the suffering in our life. It's the answer because it, it shows us that God really has our best interest at heart. Jesus is the answer to Naomi's needs. Jesus is the answer to our need. And you may have gone astray in the life, in your life, like Naomi, and in search of bread that does not satisfy. God has not simply cut you off in anger or wrath that you deserve. We all deserve the wrath of God. We don't like to talk about that in churches. We frown at that idea that God has wrath, that God is holy, and God is just, and our sin needs to be dealt with, and God deals with it by placing his wrath and pouring his wrath on his son to die in our place. Jesus bore the wrath of the Father for our sins upon the cross so that we, rebellious outsiders, could be invited in. That we could experience joy in a relationship with God. We are, we are no longer outsiders because of the cross, because of what Christ did for us. This is our hope. This is our message. And for Naomi and for us in this world, we are walking a trail through the wilderness. And we take a switchback and we, we think through the switchback that we're, we're making our way in the direction we need to go. And then there's another switchback and realize that, no, we actually have much farther to go. And, and it's difficult. And things are moving much slower than we'd like. And John Piper in his book, uh, A Sweet and Bitter Providence in the Book of Ruth, and I would encourage you to get it and read it. It's a fabulous book. He says, the point of biblical stories is to help us feel in our bones not just know in our heads that God is for us in all of these strange turns. We need to feel it in our bones, not just acknowledge it in our heads. And as we journey this life, you're not gonna see very much farther in front of you. And you're gonna feel like you may be brought to the, to the cliff, to the precipice, and that you're gonna fall over. But God is using these situations. God is using these stories. God is using this church. He's using the people that are surrounded here this morning 
to let you know in your life that what God is doing is he's bringing these things in your life for your good. And so when you feel that God is far from you, even like Naomi, that God is against you, remember that he is for you. That he is right now laying a foundation for greater happiness for your life. You know, the book of Ruth teaches us that God is plotting for our joy. He's plotting for our joy. He's making a thousand actions right now that we're unaware of for our good and for his glory. So in the midst of trouble and suffering, we need to trust him. The hard times, the difficult times in life, they're not wasted in the economy of God. So don't make an excuse for the sovereignty of God today. The story's not over. God is not finished. Trust him. Let's pray. Father, we come before your throne in humility, recognizing that we know very little of what will happen in this life. God, we, we try and we plan with, with good and right motives to make wise decisions for our life. But God, we recognize again this morning that we take risks in everything we do. We do not know the income, uh, the outcome, excuse me, you are the only one, God, who never takes a risk. Help us, God, to follow you, to trust you. And we confess that we've not always a desire to follow you. That we've, like Elimelech and Naomi, chosen to stray from your word and what it tells us, it instructs us to do because we think we know better. We, we think we're making a good decision We've maybe listened to the world and their nonsense of telling us to follow our heart. God, that's utter nonsense. Help us to follow your word. Help us to obey to what your word says. And, and God, we recognize that when we do that in this world, in this life, we will be mocked most likely by people in this world. It may seem like it's not common sense. I'm sure Ruth felt that same way. Stepping out in faith to serve Naomi and to follow you. God, help us to be like Ruth. Help us to be loyal like Ruth. Help the couples here, the married couples that are here that have, that have coveted together, that have stood before you and witnesses that they will forever be together. Help them to be loyal in all of their relationship. Help them to go back to Ruth 1 and to read this again and to, to write this on their own lives and their hearts to remember this, to re repeat it to one to another, husband and wife, to reaffirm it week in and week out that they're, they're gonna stay loyal. Help us, God. God, we recognize also that we, some of us have held, all of us probably 
held too tightly to this world, held too tightly to our stuff or, or to people, and we, we begin to depend on things other than you. And as you're stripping those away, God, help us to not grow angry at you, but to, again, realize that you have our best at heart and our mind. You, you know what's best for us. Help us to trust you. Help us to encourage one another in the midst of suffering, to point each of us, one to another, as the body of Christ, back to God, that we'd be an encouragement to one another, that we'd give hope to one another. Help us, God, as we leave this place to, to go share the gospel, the hope that we have with others, that we're surrounded by our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, our family. Help us to be bold in the proclamation of the gospel. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.